I am not free. I am not free. What? You? It's the old saying, you're free white 21. Old saying, right? For me, you could have also added uh, privileges that go along with being male, straight, Anglo, able-bodied, middle class or better, educated, professional, and so forth. Oh, and American. Let's not forget the privilege we have of living here. Yeah, I share some of these privileges with others in the room, but not everyone has my privileges. There are people who are different from me. Yes, I have all this privilege, yet I'm not free. Let me explain. First of all, let's talk about privilege. According to sociologist Alan Johnson in his very expensive textbook, Privilege, Power, and Difference, the trouble around difference is really about privilege and power. The existence of privilege and the lopsided distribution of power that keeps it going. The trouble is rooted in a legacy that we all inherited and while we're here, it belongs to us. It isn't our fault. It wasn't caused by something we did or didn't do. But now that it's ours, it's up to us to decide how we're going to deal with it before we collectively pass it along to the generations that follow ours. In other words, racism and sexism and other forms of oppression cannot be maintained without a system of privilege. And as Johnson says, privilege is a feature of social systems, not individuals. People don't have or have privilege depending on the system. People have or don't have privilege depending on the system they're in and the social categories other people put them in. To say that I have race privilege says less about me personally than it does about the society we all live in and how it's organized to assign privilege on the basis of socially defined sets of racial categories that change historically and often overlap. The challenge facing me as an individual has more to do with how I participate in society as a recipient of race privilege and how those choices oppose or support the system itself. According to Harry Broad, professor at Northern Iowa University, we need to be clear that there's no such thing as giving up one's privilege to be outside the system. One is always in the system. The only question is whether one is part of the system in a way that challenges or strengthens the status quo. Privilege is not something I take, in which therefore I have the option of not taking. This is something society gives me, and unless I change the institutions which give it to me, they will continue to give it, and I will continue to have it, however noble and egalitarian my intentions. So racism, classism, sexism, and the other isms consist of social patterns, of exclusion, rejection, 
harassment, discrimination, and even violence, as we've been reminded this week. These patterns are pervasive throughout American society, and they continue today despite changes in individual attitudes towards people of color, different gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion. Those who fail to see this often complain about having to be politically correct, avoiding comments and jokes that are insensitive, remembering, being forced to remember to include women, African Americans, and Jews, and Muslims, and other minorities in decisions and activities. Well, civil rights made everyone, laws made everyone equal in America, didn't they? Why can't blacks and women just get over it? Why do they have to be so defensive? We should see these comments for what they are. A longing for a time when white men only had to care about what other white men thought or wanted. According to Johnson, it's not necessary or even desirable for white Americans to feel guilty about the actions of other whites, but it's important that we act. It's not important to fix blame for past wrongs. It's important to make conscious choices to change the system. Those who think of themselves as being on the sidelines must see themselves as participants, nonetheless, of an oppressive system of privilege. Johnson writes, privilege is created and maintained through social systems that are dominated by, centered on, and identified with privileged groups. A racist society, for example, is white-dominated, white-centered, and white-identified. That doesn't mean it's full of people who feel animosity or malevolence towards people of color. We don't have to think sexist or racist thoughts in order to participate in a system in which racist and sexist trouble happens. Participating is all that it takes to involve us. It's also all it takes to give us the potential to be part of the solution. For when we see how we we are connected to the problem, we can see how we can make a difference by choosing differently, and as we participate in making systems happen. Since privilege is rooted primarily in systems such as families, schools, and workplaces, change isn't simply a matter of changing people. People, of course, will have to change in order for systems to change. People, uh, but the most important point is that changing people isn't enough. The solution also has to include entire systems such as capitalism, whose paths of least resistance shape how we feel, think, and behave as individuals. And how we see ourselves and one another. So how do we get privilege? In his book, Between the World and Me, Tahanisi Coates wrote to his son about people who believe they are white. Americans believe in the reality of race as defined, indubitable feature of the natural world. Difference in hue and hair color is old. But belief in the preeminence of hue and hair color, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes which are indelible, 
This is the new idea at the heart of these new people who've been brought up, hopefully, tragically, deceitfully, to believe that they are white. Thandeka, who was a professor at UU's Meadville Lombard Theological School, said, No one is born white in America. And she goes on to describe what happens next in her aptly named book, Learning to be White. In a later book called Soul Work, Thandeka writes that although no one is born white, children are born with an innate ability to relate and bond to others. We've seen this, right? Children thus have to learn how to internally destroy their own ability to relate and bond with those who are not acceptable to their parents or authority figures. Only then can they learn to deny what their feelings affirm, the importance of open-hearted engagement with others. So I guess what Maddie beautifully sang was right. They have to be carefully taught. Then Dekker recounts stories from people who recall this abuse inflicted upon them as their parents, peers, and the rest of society taught them to be white. The same can be said of other aspects of privilege where young people learn how to interact with people with differences from them. That's why I asked you all to explore childhood memories in the guided meditation. What did we recall from that exercise? Did we experience any discomfort? Guilt, shame. It may not be guilt over our own treatment of others, but usually it's shame at being separated from our authentic selves. The child who wanted to accept everyone, but learned to accept that those others should not be treated as people of our own race, gender, class, sexual orientation, religion, or nationality. That's why Thandeka says, white America's first racial victim is its own child. So what can we do about it? Another contributor to soul work, Dr. Rebecca Parker, president and professor of theology at the Star King School for the Ministry. That's our West Coast seminary for UUs. She tells a story about traveling through rural western Pennsylvania during a rainy spell and finding evidence of recent flooding when she rounded a corner to find the road covered with water. It was rising fast, and only then did she realize what was happening here and now, and she was trapped in her car. This is what it's like to be white in America, she writes. It is to travel well ensconced in a secure vehicle, to see signs of what is happening in the world or outside the compartment one is traveling in and not realize that these signs have any contemporary meaning. It is to be dislocated, to misjudge your location, to believe you are uninvolved and unaffected by what's happening in the world. So how does she say we change this? First, we must cultivate an ongoing awareness of our situation. This may involve remedial reading as we seek perceptions of those who actually experience depression as well as those who've worked to oppose it. We also need to recognize the harm that's been done to ourselves 
by cutting ourselves off from the whole world. Our, our upbringing did not teach us the whole story of American history, only the white and predominantly male side of it. This deprived us all of the rich diversity and experience that is our nation's heritage. Until we understand the point of view of the master and the slave, we are not whole Americans. In the words of early 20th century activist Sarah Harrington, while the legal, material, and even superficial requirements to eradicate racism are well known, its psychological and more deeply spiritual requirements have been persistently neglected, namely the oneness of the human family. It is this principle of oneness that needs to be the driving force behind the struggle uniting the races. If racism, sexism, classism, and other forms of discrimination are reinforced and protected by social structures, it is our duty to dismantle them. At the state level, that's the work of the 22 State Action Network, SANS, that exist in this country. Just north of us, the Unitarian Universalist Pennsylvania Legislative Advocacy Network, UPLAN, was launched in 2007, has been working on such issues as ending mass incarceration, economic justice, the environment, immigration, reproductive rights, and LGBTQ rights. To our south, the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Virginia was formed in 2013 and has been involved in such issues as income inequality, health care expansion, voting rights, redistricting, and immigration reform. To our east, the Unitarian Universalist Delaware Advocacy Network was formed nine days ago with all five congregations supporting it, and I was present at its birth. And their UDAN plan involves working on a variety of issues, including the environment and ending mass incarceration. In our area, only West Virginia has yet to form a state action network, but I have high hopes that some members of this congregation could become instrumental in its formation. Right, Jerry? One of our congregants recently approached me to say that for the first time she had talked to her state representative in West Virginia on an issue that she cared deeply about. She was surprised at how easy it was and how exciting it was to participate in the democratic process in a concrete and meaningful way and in support of our shared values. I had the distinct pleasure of helping each of our neighboring states create their own networks so when, not if, our West Virginians are ready, I offer my assistance as midwife. But the Maryland SAN has been the focus of my own passion since its founding in 2005. Every year since 2006, the Unitarian Universalist Legislative Ministry of Maryland has pursued three or four issues before the state legislature with significant success. But more importantly, you use all over the state have become informed about important issues and they participated in the democratic process by testifying, attending rallies and press conferences, advocating directly with their lawmakers, and in 2012 convincing their friends and neighbors 
as voters to support referenda on marriage equality and in-state tuition for undocumented youth, Maryland's DREAM Act. That's why UU Legislative Ministry of Maryland named its Lawmaker of the Year in 2012, the Maryland Voter. We've supported a series of successful measures to curb smokestack emissions, tailpipe emissions, and set targets for renewable energy. We moved health reform forward to cover more people before the Affordable Care Act was passed. We defended the human rights of the LGBT community against constitutional amendments banning gay marriage. And then we worked to make marriage equality a reality in our state. In our most recent victory, We helped expand the anti-discrimination laws to include our siblings in the trans community, something that was at least 15 years overdue. We worked to restrict and then repeal the death penalty in the state and to enact meaningful restrictions on guns in the wake of Sandy Hook. It's been a busy 11 years. But this year we made a change in our approach to advocacy that's directly related to difference, privilege, and power. We came to realize that all of our priorities have something in common. Each bill, each change in the law requires us to confront systems that use deceit, manipulation, force, and oppression in order to preserve power and privilege. These structures of privilege and oppression are interrelated and must be addressed as such with a coordinated campaign to dismantle these structures in the state. From this perspective, we see that our efforts involving environmental, economic, and social justice must be a part of a coordinated approach based on UU values and the personal commitment of our members. So instead of pursuing each of our issues separately and independently, we promoted a unified, faith-based vision for a more just, peaceful, and sustainable world. Let me illustrate using our most recent priority issues. Death with dignity. A lot of folks here were involved with that. UUs have long held that individuals have the right to self-determination in matters of health care, life, and death. Opposition to these principles has largely come from representatives of the majority Christian religious community on the basis that it would legalize suicide, a sin, However, we see this as a civil rights issue and stand against those who would dictate to others how they should live or die. We believe that all people are entitled to every option available to them. Those with terminal conditions should be supported in making these important decisions. This year, unfortunately, the sponsor of the bill, Senator Ron Young of Frederick, could could not get enough votes to get it out of his committee and he is asking for our support to help convince lawmakers of the importance of supporting the right of choice in end-of-life decisions. Economic justice. Well, the capitalist economic system created a high standard of living that created a large, robust middle class in the mid-20th century. But in more recent years, it's been manipulated by wealthy elites, often using government tools, to benefit the obscenely rich at the benefit of everyone else, reversing many protections given to workers through earlier government action and union action. We're working to assure that workers get a living wage, get earned sick leave to care for themselves and loved ones, 
and fair compensation. In 2014, we helped raise the minimum wage in Maryland, and this year we helped pass pay equity measures addressed to the continuing and egregious gap in compensation between white men on one hand and women and minorities on the other. There's still a lot of work to be done in that area. From a larger perspective, we can see that business leaders in every state have been very successful in convincing legislators that the state needs to be business friendly. And this has created a bias against legislation aimed at improving a lot of workers and consumers and the public at large. I believe that states that embrace this friend, business friendly attitude are actually in danger of becoming societies that resemble the company towns of the Industrial Revolution where residents are so dependent on a dominant business that they never speak out on their own behalf for fear of job loss and financial ruin. Our support for specific legislation, therefore, requires us to work on the larger issue of changing the attitude of our lawmakers towards greater recognition of worker rights and needs. After all, the workers actually produce what the capital sells and profits from. And as a faith group, our moral voice has a greater impact than that of unions, which are seen by many lawmakers as merely self-serving. Environmental justice. The same business forces have worked to thwart efforts to combat climate change uh, in order to continue making profits from extracting and burning fossil fuels and keeping us all dependent on them for our energy needs. However, there's a strong and growing environmental movement around this country that's slowly overcoming the opposition. We've been a leader in the Maryland Climate Coalition for over a decade, and we've been on their steering committee almost that long, providing the moral voice for communities suffering from environmental degradation and for the interdependent web of life, which, after all, doesn't get to vote on what humans do to it. This year, our coalition was successful in passing two major bills, one which renewed the state's Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act and increased the renewable portfolio standard of 25% renewable energy by 2020. The other one, the Clean Energy Jobs, energy Jobs Act, would have increased the availability of solar and wind power and created thousands of new jobs in the solar and wind industries. Since the governor vetoed that bill, we'll be looking for an override in January. Finally, to address racial justice, which is really where we started here. We supported measures for criminal justice reform and police accountability. In this case, the structures of privilege and oppression are themselves multifaceted and intertwined. The Baltimore uprising in April showed the level of frustration with the social and criminal justice system that's been building over years and demonstrated that we must take an active role. Many UUs have urged us to support Black Lives Matter. And we have. But it would be a mistake to say that we have adopted this as a legislative priority. The fact is that racism is much broader. And we're only focusing on a small part of it when we deal with the abuses in the criminal justice system. Granted, it's the abuse and killing of African Americans that I police has been the trigger for the protests and the outrage and significantly raised awareness among whites in the power structure. But before that, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, 
also confronted us with the oppressiveness of the criminal justice system, of which the police are a part. The last year we worked to pass a measure that created a Justice Reinvestment Coordinating Council. And this year we supported a large bill proposed by that council to develop a statewide framework of a sentencing and corrections to further reduce the state's incarcerated population, reduce spending on corrections, and reinvest in strategies to increase public safety and reduce recidivism. These efforts focus on the kinds of issues raised by Ms. Alexander in the new Jim Crow, particularly those relating to assisting those already victimized by the criminal justice system or imprisoned. It, by, it passed with bipartisan support and was signed by the governor. However, we also worked on issues that became the focal point of Black Lives Matter. This year, we supported a bill proposed by a joint House-Senate work group that enacted 23 recommendations that included modifying the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights so that it no longer shielded officers from being held accountable and provides for uh, citizen participation in review panels. And it makes the process more transparent. It puts our path on the state to dealing with the systemic problems with police-community relations. Both aspects of our culture, of our efforts, are ultimately aimed at raising awareness and promoting the discussion that Michelle Alexander said we had to have about race. We hope that pushing the issue of police accountability, while important in itself, is ultimately a means towards the end of addressing the larger issues of race and privilege. So we see what we must do we know that each of us has some kind of privilege, even if just Americans, right? And that we have all been taught to accept our privilege by treating those without our privilege as the other. We've learned not to notice our privilege and not to recognize the harm that's been done to us by cutting ourselves off from the whole world. Our upbringing has inhibited our ability to be our authentic selves, to fully embrace the diversity of our community, and to celebrate the unique gifts of everyone. It's time we broke this cycle, ending the abuse of our children. We know that it is our moral duty to confront the structures that protest, perpetuate the system of discrimination and privilege, and we must engage others in the discussion. Even if we can't change the structures that support and protect privilege right away, we must talk about the problem. Every discussion advances the cause of justice and bends ever so slightly the arc of the universe in that direction. Are you ready to acknowledge your privilege or privileges? Can you see that it's up to us to decide what we're going to deal with this mess before we collectively pass it on to later generations? Do you personally agree that unless I change the institutions to give privilege to me, they will continue to give it and I will continue to have it no matter how noble and egalitarian my intentions? Do you want to, be, to continue to accept the status quo or are you ready to be part of the solution? Are you ready for liberation? And say it with me. I am not free. I 
am not free. Thank you.